This is James Penner. Uh, now, some of you know another James Penner, and even uh, we have a sociologist from southern Alberta who I'm sure you get confused with many mm -hmm. times. I think I know three James Penners, actually, so I always have to kind of identify which one that I'm speaking with. But this James Penner and I, we've known each other for about 25 years. Uh, we were together at Columbia Bible College many years ago when I was on staff there, and James was a student, played on my hockey team for a little bit. He's more involved in things like bodybuilding and things like that at that time, but we connected there and haven't seen each other for about 20-some years, and it's just been really cool to reconnect with James again this past year or two as God has relocated his family back here to Saskatoon. So I wanted to just interview James a little bit because you need to get to know a little bit about him before he shares God's word with us this morning. And so, uh, James, first of all, just introduce us to your family a little bit and describe what brought you here to Saskatoon. All right. Yeah, my family is here. They're sitting in that area. I promised I would not make them stand up, and so I have to keep that promise. But we have three daughters, and we have a little boy who is in children's church somewhere uh, in one of the rooms. Um, and we came from Abbotsford, B.C. I'm a B.C. boy, born and raised. The, my only uh, recollection of Saskatchewan, we went to Manitoba every year as a boy. Uh, and we, got, got, we went through uh, Saskatchewan on the Trans-Canada. So you can imagine what I thought about Saskatchewan. Uh, you know, I, it was counting pronghorns and the dead gophers on the road. That was pretty much Saskatchewan. Um, never dreamt that I would live here. Um, but here we are. Often I look at the forecast and thinking, that, that's a, our forecast. Like, I live here. I live in Saskatchewan. By, by choice, by choice. I mean, God pretty much grabbed me by the collar and he dragged me here. But we came um, really sensing God calling us to take on pastoral ministry at Faith River. Faith River is a church plant off of um, West Portal. They're an MB church. And uh, I came there, we came there as um, a pastor couple. Now, you've also had a, you've had a unique journey with mental illness. And that's also part of your story mm. and also part of why you're not pastoring right now as well, mm. too. And so tell us a little bit about uh, what you'd like to say about that part of your journey and uh, how God is working that through your life. Through your life. Uh, it's interesting. I actually received a letter from uh, my psychiatrist office this week. And I've been um, struggling with mental illness for many years. But this was my latest diagnosis that I received, and I actually wrote it down. And this is what it said. It says, major depressive disorder recurrent, impartial submission, or remission, I mean. OCPD, which stands for um, Obsessive Compulsive Personality Disorder, uh, in remission. Generalized anxiety disorder, post-concussive syndrome. So that was the list. And I look at those, and those are letters, and they are titles attached to my name that actually, in reality qualify me for ministry more than anything else does. It may not qualify me for a position in a church or a specific role, but it does qualify me to be used by Jesus as a minister, and that's how I look at that. Um, and he has used these things powerfully in my life, and I'm sure in a congregation of this size, I know that there are many of you who either personally struggle with mental illness, or you are caring for somebody that is struggling with mental illness, or you know uh, it, it's in your life in some way. And I just, wanted to, I just want you to know there is no shame in mental illness. 
When someone is diagnosed with cancer, they're not filled with shame. Why is it that we feel shame when we are diagnosed with a mental illness? Um, Long ago, for a number of years, I was praying, God, would you please heal me? Heal me of of these, these struggles that I have in my mind. And I prayed that for probably about a year. And finally, God said to me, he says, James, stop praying for me to heal you. I don't need to heal you to use you. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness, and that's what I'm talking about. When we are weak, he's strong, and so I boast about my weakness. I don't make light of it. No, it is hard. Those of you who go through mental illness, it is really difficult. And at times you despair. At times you have no hope. And you wonder, God, could you ever use me again? And sometimes even coming to a setting like this, I have to confess. Often I come here, and by the halfway point in the service, I'm looking for an exit. And I'm just like, God, I just want to get out of here. And that's what mental illness is like. You long for people, and you long to be with them because you feel isolated, and yet when you're with them, you struggle. And you feel out of place because you can't think and you can't process, and so you want to leave, but you don't want to leave because you want to be with people, and you're in this angst. So I just want, I just want you to know that there is no shame And it's not because you're not reading your Bible enough or praying enough or you don't have enough faith of the sin in your life that you have mental illness. I was a pastor and I was diagnosed with mental illness and I was praying and I was fasting and I was not only um, reading God's word, I was preaching God's word. And yet, I struggled with mental illness. That's almost a sermon right there. I know, you were going. It was good. So... That story connects also to your journey in pastoral ministry and, and even recognizing that you had this aha moment where you realized, I'm actually not a pastor. Mm-hmm. And you and I have talked a fair bit, especially lately, about uh, different gifts in the church and especially looking at Ephesians 4, which talked about some of these unique gifts. Some call them apest, you know, uh, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher. Mm-hmm. And how, you know, you realize in that, that that your primary gifting was in this area of prophetic gifting, which I would really affirm in you. And, and how it's different and distinct from pastoral mis- uh, ministry in some ways. So talk a little bit about that, about that unique gifting and that understanding uh, of what God has shown you about some mm-hmm. of the unique gifting, giftings that you have and, and how it's different than pastoral ministry and how that also fuels your passion for the church, your passion for Jesus, uh, the church in general, but also even for our MB family. Just mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I was, I was a pastor for just about 15 years in three different churches, and ministry was really, really hard. And I often would just find my soul just kind of shriveling over time. And I was always asking God, like, God, why is ministry so hard? Like, is it supposed to be this difficult? And what I have discovered over time, what he has shown me, and what he, especially now, when I was at Faith River, and, and he called me away from there, is that James... I have actually gifted you to be a prophet, which is different than a pastor. And I want you to let go of being a pastor, and I want you to begin to embrace who you are. And so simply what that means, I know that can be so misunderstood. It does not mean that I'm going to ask you to come up here and I'm going to tell you your future, or I'm going to speak some word that's extra biblical and 
And because I speak it and I'm a prophet, you can't actually challenge it because it came from a prophet. That's not what that is all about. A prophet takes God's word, God's, God's truth revealed in his word, and he just, and we speak it to, to the people. We are concerned that the body of Christ is faithful to the covenant relationship they have through Jesus Christ. And we're always calling the church to renewal, calling the church to repentance, calling the church to faithfulness. And it can be, it can, it can be released in many, many different ways. So I know we have prophets, we have many prophets in this room. And they have their eyes fixed on heaven. They want to experience the power of Jesus. They want to experience the kingdom right now, today, in this place. They want to connect with God in a powerful and significant way. And that is my heart, is that the church begins to experience the living Jesus Christ today. And that we're faithful to him and his call in our lives. And so part of that is he has just really shown me kind of what he wants to do in the body in bringing renewal is that we begin to function in the fullness of the ministry of Jesus. And that's in Ephesians 4. You can see the four different giftings that, that um, Bruce mentioned. And Jesus embodied every one of those. And Jesus has a passion for Saskatoon. He's got a passion for Canada. And he has so many lost children that he mourns for and that he loves, that he died for, that he wants to bring in. But the church has to be healthy. He always works through the body. And we have to be healthy. We have to be functioning in the fullness of his ministry so that we can do the fullness of his mission. And that's my passion, to be able to lead the church into this that those giftings can be released. And so that's um, what we sense God is doing, and we continue to look to him for opportunities. I just bugged James that he just doesn't like doing the meetings anymore and the administration work. That's why he bailed on Exactly. There's some truth to that. Yeah. pray and get out of here. <laughs> Lord, thank you for our brother. Thank you for uh, the gifts that you've given him. Open our hearts, Lord, to what you have for us this morning. Thank you for your spirit that guides and leads us into truth, for your word. And I just pray blessing on James. Give him clarity of his mind right now. And free him to speak your word boldly to us. May we be receptive and have obedient hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you. Thanks, Bruce. As you can see, we have the communion elements in front of us. And... Just as a way of beginning to prepare our hearts, I'm just going to ask you, if you want to stand to your feet, and I'm going to read, you can follow along as I read, if you want to stand up, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 32. I always like to have people stand when I'm reading. I don't know if you've ever been in a courthouse, and the judge walks in, and everybody stands up, because, oh, you know, the judge came in. But this is the Word of God. This is the living God, who made everything, this is his word. If you used to stand up here and you were asked to ask him questions about life, about the spiritual reality in which you live, he'd say, well, it says in, God, it says in my word. And he would just use his word. And so I love it when people stand as a way of showing reverence for God's word. So let me just read this. This is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. 
In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who drinks of the cup for For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. You may be seated. I need to be really open and honest with you this morning. Um, In many ways, over time, the Lord's table or communion has lost some of its meaning for me. And often I would participate in communion, and I would leave the service and thinking, there has got to be more to this. There has got to be something inherently powerful within it, that, and it kind of locked within it that I am not experiencing, because when I take communion, often I would leave the service, and I would have this sense of emptiness, and this, this ache for, for more within me. I think at times I know that was, this was heightened by my mental illness. We're going to church is a, is a struggle. And just being there is a challenge. And then you can't enter into the singing because you can't think very clearly and you're having trouble with the sermon. And then you have the, the, the Lord's table at the end. And by that time, you're already checked out and ready to go. And you can't really enter in. You can't embrace what it, what, what it means. Yet at the same time, I look back all through the years of being a pastor. Many times I'm leading the Lord's Supper. I'm the one handing out the elements. 
And I would be there thinking, is, is this really the Lord's Supper? Is there something that we're missing in our discipline of the Lord's table? And then Bruce asked me if I would speak on the Lord's table when he asked me to speak. And I said, yes. And inside, I was like, okay, Jesus, I need you to teach me. I have been doing this as long as I can remember. Month after month after month. For 40 years. And more often than not, I come away with an ache for more. I need renewal in this discipline of the Lord's table. So Jesus, I need you to renew me. I need my eyes opened again to the truth because I cannot see it. I know there's more locked away. I need you to reveal to me the significance of this. And so that was my prayer in these last number of weeks. And so what I'm doing this morning, I just want to share with you what Jesus is teaching me. And I have a lot more to learn. But here's just a few things that he's opened up my eyes to. And I hope it can can be an encouragement to you. One of the first things I came to realize is how influenced I am and how influenced I believe the North American church is by by this seductive and corruptive idea that consumerism gives to us. And it's so much a part of our, the world in which we, we live in, we hardly even recognize it for what it is. And that idea is this. Whatever human desires, security, safety, fulfillment, can only be found outside the realm of what is your life in any given moment. That's the whole idea of consumerism, isn't it? Within any moment of your life, you do not actually have in that moment present everything you need for significance or for fulfillment. You've got to have this product or you've got to have this experience. And so you're always living for the next moment. And so many people's life has become, as someone has said, so filled with the if-onlys of the future that today becomes an inconvenient obstacle in the path of reaching tomorrow. People can also become that. People in their lives can become this obstacle that are in my way for reaching what I Long for in the future. So much of our thinking can be dominated by the accomplishment and goals, accomplishments and goals we hope to achieve in the future that we're rarely alive to the realities of the present. God said to me, James, that is a part of your struggle. And this is how it can surface when we are practicing the Lord's Supper. 
the closed circle. Often as I've had practiced the Lord's table, I will in humility, or we will as a congregation, and this is right and this is good, and we need to keep doing this. But in humility, we practice hindsight. And we remember what Jesus did for us. We remember the cost, the incredible grace of God that he would send his own son to die on the cross for my sin, to forgive me, and to pay the penalty for my sin. What an incredible God we have when we remember this and we look in the past and we praise God for what he has done. Great, and we need to keep doing that. And then we look to the future and we recognize that this is just a type of the actual banquet we're going to have one day in heaven. And we're going to actually be in the presence of God and Jesus is going to preside over the table and he's going to break the bread and he's going to hand out the I don't know what it will be. Wine? Won't be Welch's, that's for sure. (laughs) But we'll have this incredible banquet. And not only will we be free from the penalty of sin, we'll be free from the presence of sin. It'll be gone, wiped away. Death will have been destroyed completely. And we look forward to this because this is a type of that. And it's what Jesus is going to do and he's coming back again. And so we look into the future which is also very good, and it's right. But as someone has said, to live in the past or the future is easy, but to live in the present is like threading a needle. It takes faith to look in the past to remember what Jesus did and to believe. That takes faith. It does take faith to look into the future and anticipate what Jesus is going, is, is going to do in his second coming, and it needs to change how we live. It takes faith. But let me tell you something. It takes more faith for me to believe that right now in the present, in my life, at this moment, I can experience the power in the presence of Jesus today, right now, in the circumstances, in the situations in my life. That takes faith. It is such a struggle for us as believers to let go of what we can see, what we can taste and touch, what you can pick up and you can turn around in your hand. All of our world's temporal values are placed on, are based on what you can see and what you can touch and what you can feel. And it's so hard to let go of these things to take hold of the unseen which we cannot see. It seems so sacrificial that I would let these things go to take hold of what I cannot yet see, but is present. This was the exact struggle that the Corinthians church was having with their agape meal before the Lord's Supper. What were they doing? They were coming together, and and some of them were hungry, and they were thirsty, and some were getting drunk, and they were overeating, and the food was gone even before the others showed up. 
The food and the drink, it, it was just there. You could see it. You could smell it. You could taste it. You could touch it. And as their stomachs emptied, a hunger hormone was released and it told their brains that they were hungry. They're no different than we are. And I'm sure as you've noticed, once you've decided that you're going to eat, you realize that you have a voracious appetite because now insulin, another key hunger hormone, has been released and now you can hardly restrain yourself and you want to start picking at the food even before you get to the table. So, what did they do? They ate until they were satisfied. And they enjoyed the meal immensely. For just like ourselves, our brains are wired to enjoy food. It's a primal survival mechanism. And it seems so sacrificial to let go of what I can see, to take hold of what I cannot see. What is the true reality in this moment, the spiritual reality in that moment, it's so hard to focus on that when you have what you can see and taste and touch right in front of you. And that's what they did. The human just like we are. Here's the incredible wisdom of God. That Jesus takes what you can taste and what you can touch and what you can see and what you can pick up, what you can eat and what you can drink. Takes these very things And he helps us to understand and remember through them that what he did in the past and what he'll do in the future, just as we can experience these things this morning, we are meant to experience all that he has done on the cross for us and all that that means right now in the present. What he's saying just as real as these elements are, are the realities that I have made possible through my precious blood shed on the cross for you right now. Right now. Present today. At this meal. So that's one thing that Jesus has shown me. And began to reveal to me. And then there was this. All of that is true, what I have just said. Because these seen elements are also meant to make us alive to the fact that the death and resurrection of Jesus marked the beginning of a new age. This age in which we now live, the distinct period of history in which we live. And something that is distinct about this age in which we live is how present and powerful Jesus is meant to be in and through his body, the church. And actually the Lord's Supper is meant to be observed only 
for this distinct period of history in which we live. After the death of Jesus, in his ascension, resurrection and ascension, and until his second coming. That is when we're supposed to do this. This distinct age in which we live. And so, what is this age in which we live? In Ephesians 1, that Bruce read, it tells us that when God raised Jesus from the dead, it says that he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. That doesn't mean that God has a hand and Jesus is sitting right beside it. It means that all authority was given to Jesus. He said, God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And that God placed all things under his feet and made him to be head over everything for the church, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Talking about the age in which we now live. Philippians 2, verses 8 to 11 says this. In being found in appearance as a man, talking about Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we live in the age of the exalted Christ. Jesus came in relative weakness, especially as a baby. But as he grew up, he grew. He grew in, in, in power God used him in incredible ways, but he came in relative weakness, but he was raised in power. He was raised as Lord, as the exalted Christ, as supreme over all things, who holds everything together. That is who Jesus is right now in this moment. And Philippians 2 actually tells us what the main goal and the main aim Jesus has in his reign. The purpose. And it says this, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him a name that is above every name. That, here's why. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And every tongue confess and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I find it interesting language in what we call things is really, really important. Because that, that, gives, that gives meaning and significance to 
to the things that we are wanting to give significance to. Depending on what tradition you come from, the tradition that I come from, we call the Lord's Supper, we call it communion. And that's okay. And it, comes, it actually comes from Scripture. It comes from 1 Corinthians 16, which talks about participating. When we eat the, uh, when we eat the juice and we drink, in, or sorry, eat the bread and drink the juice, we are actually participating with Jesus. We are like communing with Him is another word. We're fellowshipping with Him. So we have the word communion. We're communing with each other. We're communing with, with Jesus. Other traditions call it the Eucharist, which means gratefulness or thanksgiving which, of course, is the posture we are to have and the attitude we are to have and actually what we're supposed to be doing in communion. Of course, we want to be thankful for what Christ has done for us. But it's interesting that the Bible calls this only here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, calls it the Lord's Supper is what the Bible calls it. I believe one of the reasons why we need to understand it as the Lord's Supper is because the main aim of Jesus in our world today and how He will work in every heart of of every man and every woman is always towards one end that they will come to know Jesus Christ as the personal Lord and Savior. And one day when He returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But He works in our hearts and in our lives that we might voluntarily confess this to Him and pledge our lives to Him and our loyalty to Him. And surrender our lives to Him completely. And experience Him as the Lord of our lives who loves us. So He uses the Lord's Supper as a way of continuously bringing us to this place where we are again laying down our life before Jesus and acknowledging Jesus, yes, You are Lord. Because I don't know about you but I give things away and I take them back all the time. And I have a hard time submitting everything in my life to Him. I have a hard time allowing Him to be in control and allowing Him to hold all things together. So this is a way for the body of Christ to continually be renewing our relationship with Him, that He is the Lord and submitting to Him, and surrendering to Him. And so I believe that this is first and foremost what Paul is meaning in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread or drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without recognizing in the body of the Lord, eat and drink judgment on themselves simply because of who Jesus is and our need to surrender to Him. I'm looking at the time and I'm running out of time. So let me just, I want to share one last thing. 
these elements that we have before us are meant to help us understand how present and powerful Jesus is meant to be in and through his body, the church, in this distinct period of history. So, my wife and I, Trish and I, are in a covenant of marriage. We are, the Bible says, one flesh. And this is the closest and most intimate human relationship possible. I know Trish, and she knows me better than any, anyone else because we live in the same house. We occupy the same um, bedroom. We fight over the same bathroom. We, we eat, eat most of our meals together. We are in each other's presence. I don't get to know Trish better. And I don't need to get to know her more intimately by doing things for her, like sweeping the floor or washing the dishes or taking out the garbage. I mean, it's all good, and it brings some harmony in our home, but I do not actually get to know her more intimately by doing these things. I draw closer to her by being with her. And one of our favorite ways of doing this, and we did it just again a few weeks ago, is by going out for supper together. And I am just fully present to her, and she's fully present to me. One of the amazing spiritual realities in which we live in this distinct period of history of the exalted Christ is that we live in a covenant relationship with Jesus. A covenant denotes an irrevocable decision which cannot be canceled by anyone. When Jesus took this cup, what did he say? He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. So it's no longer the covenant of the law, it's the covenant of the Spirit. And here's an amazing spiritual reality. Is that you and Jesus occupy the same house. You live in the same house. Your spirit and the spirit of Jesus live in the same body. You occupy the same body, the same house. And so many believers are misled to think that they can actually grow closer to Jesus and become more intimate with Him by doing things for Him. You can't. You become closer and more intimate with Jesus by being, by being with Him. And one of the main ways that we can be with Him and realize again how closely connected He is with us is by sharing a meal together with Him. And that is what we're doing. He's inviting us. Just come to me. Don't come to an idea about me. No, no, come to me. The person of Jesus Christ. I love you. I died for you. Come to me. And let's share this meal together. So I just want to leave you with Revelations 3. Verse 20 where Jesus says, and he's saying this to the church in Laodicea, he says, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me.